This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Green, and the author is Denise Malone, and Denise joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Denise. Hi, Steve. I'm going to read just a short introduction that you've written about how you would introduce your book to a friend in a sentence or two, and then I have something else I want to read that you've written about the book. You say, Green is an intimate account of my journey and how I learned to overcome life's experiences and challenges through understanding perspective and perception. Those are two key words we're going to talk about a little later, perspective and perception. You also have written, this book is an account of my personal journey, It took me years of jotting my thoughts, sorrows, hurts, and experiences down, all under different titles and different formats. With each account of my life that I wrote, I found myself wanting to go out and share with others who were struggling with a sense of hope. So I guess that's why you've written this book, to try to help others. Is that correct? That's that's correct. That's what it ended up being. I, um, I actually... Wrote, started writing the book to purge my own de- demons. I wrote, I, uh, at one point, I had uh, laid out plans to commit suicide. And um, the next morning, when I did not, the next morning is actually when I started to write. And so that's when I started to write. It was for myself. It was to heal myself, to help myself, because there was a place of darkness, and I had to choose which darkness I wanted to take purging this darkness out for the one I had contemplated the night before. Now, describe some of these demons. What were you dealing with? I was dealing with um, facing uh, betrayals, denials, abuse of not only by others, but by my own hand. Uh, I was dealing with the fact that I, for years, for my whole life, as long as I had known, had... had, had um, allowed abuse to occur to me, had abuse done on me, and done it to myself. And so I needed to address the people, and I needed to address myself, when I, why I allowed that. And it was, it was very painful, and sometimes it was very difficult. There were times when I would be writing it, and I had to walk away because it was too much. A lot of tears, a lot of screaming, a lot of crying. And I just, it was, as I wrote and as I started to see things and feel things through the process, I was like, I want to be able to help others. I want to help other people who've lost their voice, who've lost their, their identity, or, or let it slip away. I want to help them get back. And you feel women often allow their identity to slip away from them and have a hard time getting it back. I do. I think that uh, I feel like women, all too often I've met women, or um, I've even been one where we we uh, always want to make it better for someone else. We want to make the, our, our partner, our spouse happy or comfortable, our children, our, our friends happy and comfortable. So we deny who we are. We, we, um, we say, yeah, that's okay, when it's really not okay, when it really does bother us, when it gets to the core of us. And we, we keep pushing it down and pushing it down, and pretty soon we no longer know who we are. We're not, we don't know what our favorite color is. We don't even know what green is, what color green really is. And so it's about um, being able to reclaim the identity, reclaim our identity, and being okay with it. It's okay. You're okay. And you're all right to feel the ways you feel. So, yeah, I, I really want to try to help women. As you say, everyone is a gift of life, a gift for someone, a gift from someone. I feel as though so often we feel as though whether we have our own children or whether there's children in our life or a special person in our life, that they're so dear and they're so special. And sometimes I think that we forget that 
we were given this gift too. Life is our gift too, and we're just as special as our children. We're just as special as the other people, and that we are all have the right to have this life, and in having this life, having an identity and having a, having a voice. You call yourself just an ordinary woman, just like the one next door. You could be anyone's daughter, sister, mother, or wife. But uh, you've gone through some tough experiences, and that can really change your perspective. Yes, it can. Um, Suddenly you're not just ordinary. Maybe you're damaged. Yeah, and that is an identity I could choose. And that is a definition I could choose. Um, But it's about perspective. Um, It's about being able to take some of the incidences that occur and look at them from another angle, stepping to the side and looking at it differently. How can I interpret it differently? How can I see this event? How can I see this occurrence? How can I see this abuse as anything other than being a victim or being, being damaged by it? And it's, it's like, what can I find in it? And so I feel as though if we're able to take a step and look at it from different angles and get a new perspective on it, sometimes we're able to, um, to find a healing in that. Because perception, which can change with, as we change our perspective, perception is reality. Yes. Um, a person's perception is their reality. And it's in knowing that, that when you not only are dealing with yourself, but dealing with other people, being knowledgeable of that, you come to find a place of compassion for yourself and a place of compassion for the people that you're dealing with. Their perception is their reality, just as my perception is my reality. And you have to respect both, not only theirs, but yours as well. And that's sometimes what we tend to not do is respect our own either. Now, you say you reached a point in which I ache. I reached a point. You say I reached a point in which I ached for my children. What was going on? Um, I, um, I was told at a very young age I, I would never have children. And I was, was blessed with two. And they, uh, at very, very, very young in life, um, they um, were no longer a part of my world. And it was um, beyond painful. And it, it was unbearable at times. Um, the, the, the longing, the aching, and the hurting over the, um, I don't want to say lost because I, I knew where they were, the, but the, the, the missing and the displacement was so incredibly painful. So how did you change that? Uh, perspective and perception. <laughs> um, it, it took a long time. I'm going to be very honest with you. And I'll, I'll be honest. There's, to this point, um, I, I can still find myself getting choked up about it. Uh, it's not to say the pain will ever go. Uh, I've even been known to say before, I think I will always have this pain in my, this, ho- this, this place in my heart that bleeds because of what occurred. But I also know that I've got to do something. I've got to do something with myself for them. And um, it... it it is, it's not that it's easy, and it's not that I think that I'll ever be over it, over it, but it is something that I can say I can, become, I can be a stronger person to set an example, to show my children, show them that I'm strong, to show them that I'm okay, they're okay, and um, just try to make things as stable, as safe for them and for myself as possible in our relationship. You reached a point where you were just tired of fighting and you just uh, wanted to end it. Yes. Now, how and why didn't you end it? I had made all plans to end it. I had, uh, for years, my children um, were what kept me from committing suicide. Um, And when I was displaced from them, that reason was no longer right there. And I had said my sorries to them. I had apologized to them. I had made my peace. Uh, I had said my sorries to uh, people I knew about what I was going to do. And I had made plans to end it. 
And it was all set out. It was all laid out. I knew the night I was going to do it. And um, I had finished crying over it. And the phone started ringing. And it was about 11.30 or 12.30 at night. And I actually got very angry because I was like, I'm in the middle of something. And the phone wouldn't stop ringing. And so um, obviously I did not do it. And then the next day, because of that phone call and um, what transpired, you know, for hours after that, I began writing. And that's when I began, I felt like I needed to purge the darkness. I needed to get it out of me. And um, that's how it all started. The book, the, the, it wasn't really initially supposed to, going to be a book. It was just getting out all of these, uh, types of the word demons, out of all these dark spaces inside of, and addressing them. So you're literally a different person today than you were. Um, you know, Steve, I really feel like, um, I feel like I've gone back to my truth to my true self as a young child. In the book, I talk about a, a little girl, Nisi, and that was me as a child, and I feel like I abandoned her because I didn't listen to her when she was telling me things weren't right. Or I, you just, that, inner, that, per, that voice inside you that you ignore and you keep walking past, you keep ignoring, pushing it down. I feel like, am I a different person? I feel like I'm back to my truth, my true person, the, the, that person. The child that I left, I feel like I made it back to her as an adult now. And we all have that little child within us. But yeah, it's hard to hear it. Right. Sometimes we don't listen, and sometimes it's very hard to hear it. Um, sometimes, and as I, address in, as I address in the book, sometimes hearing it is too painful. Right. Because all it does is bring up the fact that we abandon our truth. And it's like, I'd rather not listen, I'd never, rather not face that uh, the fact that I abandoned myself, and I, you know, so you just ignore it, you numb it. You describe your story as raw, reflective, and real. And in your chapter headings, I guess it's very evident because some of them are are very uh, reflective and raw. Where you're saying it seems to focus all about death, you know, time of death, six feet under, buried alive, beneath the soil. However, then we start to see a change, hope versus despair. Where did the hope finally come? Um, it wasn't like I woke up and the, it, it was the, the sun was shining and there was a big you know, sign in the sky. It was process. And the hope came through, um, through little glimmers of hope, a little glimmers of when I, when I would start looking at things from new perspectives and... and have new perceptions on things, I was able to start identifying, hey, I can make it. I understand that better. And it's just when you start reevaluating and looking, you start healing yourself, it's like it starts to take over. And it was just, I, it came to be. I, I, there's not a particular day or moment. Uh, probably the biggest moment is actually the morning after I almost committed suicide. It still was a long process, and there was still a lot involved after that. There's still a lot of things that occurred after that. But it, I was at a new, I was beginning to turn the corner of looking at things differently at that point. That's why your chapters start to change the feel of the titles of your chapters. Then you have scraping away the dirt, seeing light, holding on to life, holding on to me. And then you have some goblet suggestions and lifeline suggestions. Tell us about those. A few years ago, I was asked to present um, at a counseling conference on uh, goblet therapies. It's just a, a term I made up, uh, goblet therapy is. Um, the, goblet ther- the goblet suggestions throughout the book are things that I did for myself during the dark times trying to get back to my truth trying to get back to my voice, trying to get back to my identity, trying to stay alive. Some of them are affirmations. Some of them are mantras. Some of them are very simple things I've heard in my past growing up, or some of them are things that I've read in a book that I held on to. But they were little things that I used through my journey to get back to my voice and my identity. Uh, They don't cost much, just my attention. Uh, And nobody even knew had to even know I was doing them. I just realized I was doing them. 
So those are the goblet suggestions. In fact, there's a whole bunch throughout and a bunch at the end, and there's even place at the end for people to write in their own goblet suggestions because people are going to have some. People are going to say, you know what, this really makes me feel good about myself, and they're going to, you know, it'll be something else. The lifeline suggestions, during the course of my journey, um, I often felt like I was alone. I had no place to go. I didn't know where to go. Uh, so lifeline suggestions are, are phone numbers, websites, resources for people who feel like they're alone or are going through a time. There's one for rape. There's one for alcohol. Uh, there's one for drug use. The lifelines are places and resources that you can reach out to and say, I need help. Um, so if someone's going through the same type of situation in their life and they're reading it and they're like, oh, you know, I'm going through that, I've been through that, there's a phone number, there's a website, there's a resource that can help you get through it. Denise, tell us about your website. My website. My website is survivingthemurderofself.com, and it tells a little bit more about the book, a little bit more about me. Um, and I actually have a picture in there of Nisi, the little girl I left behind, um, that I have now reconnected with. And uh, you on there, you can order my book. You can also go to iUniverse.com. You can go to Amazon.com and BarnesandNoble.com and order the book. Um, so there's a lot of places you can go, but to just find out more about the book and about me, the website, it, like I said, survivingthemurderofself.com. Denise, thanks for being on iUniverse Radio. Thank you so much for sharing your story. Thank you so much, Steve. I appreciate the time. I hope you have a wonderful day. That was Denise Malone. She is the author of her book, Green. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. East Texas Meals on Wheels needs your help. For the first time in 35 years, Meals on Wheels has a waiting list for meals. Currently, we serve more than 3,500 meals per day. With the help of donors and volunteers, we can eliminate the waiting list and serve more meals and ensure all who need a hot, nutritious meal are served. You can call our offices toll-free at 1-800-451-2912 to find out more about how you can help. You can also visit our website at www.mealsonwheelseasttexas.org. Again, toll-free at 1-800-451-2912 or visit us on the web at www.mealsonwheelseasttexas.org. After all, when a person needs a meal, they need it today, not tomorrow. Thank you for helping Meals on Wheels. Saturdays on toginap.com. It's Author Talk. Get the story behind the story on fiction and literature, graphic novels, horror, mystery and crime novels, romance, science fiction and fantasy, westerns, history, humor, inspiration, and every genre. It's all on Author Talk. You'll get to hear new authors talk about their books. Take the opportunity to hear insights on what inspired them to write it. It's called Author Talk on toginet.com. And it's presented by Author House, the leading provider of services to help authors publish, promote, and sell their book around the world. Author House has assisted more than 30,000 authors, producing over 40,000 titles. Author Talk with host Steve Jorgensen, every Saturday on toginet.com. Radio with a cutting edge. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Once Upon a Challenge, Hearing is Believing. And the author is Nancy Burns. And Nancy joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Nancy. Good morning. Well, this is a story of your life experiences with a very interesting, challenging moment when you were 11 years old when you lost your eyesight. Correct. And so it, it's about adversity. Uh, as you say, adversity can be humbling, but it also can be one of our most powerful teachers. 
I believe that there is a reason for all things. And I also believe that for every problem, there is a solution. That's a great deal of wisdom that you have gained, which most people often don't gain in life. That's basically my philosophy of life, and I think that it is relevant to all segments of society, of society um, whether we are blind, um, visually impaired, uh, normal, whatever that is, general public. Um, the title of the book, as you indicated, um, Once Upon a Challenge, the first part, deals with challenges, and I believe everyone has challenges. And so the way we deal with these challenges, in my opinion, is really the key to success. And the other part of the title, Hearing is Believing, obviously is a pun on the uh, phrase that we all hear, seeing is believing. Now tell us why you wrote this book. Obviously, writing a book when you're blind has to be a challenge. Well, that's kind of a two-part question. Um, Writing the the mission, my mission... (laughs) has been to write this book for many years because it's my philosophy of life based on my life's experiences. Writing it as a blind person really isn't a a terrible challenge because of today's modern technology. I have a computer, just like you have. I have a keyboard, just like yours. I do not use a mouse. However, I do everything with keystrokes. And there is a software system uh, which allows me to go back and read uh, through synthetic voice what is on my monitor. Well, let's go back into the 1940s. You're in sixth grade. Tell us what happens. Okay. Well, I was just a a run-of-the-mill school kid in the sixth grade and back in the Midwest, which is a mining town, and happened to pick up something which was apparently an explosive, uh, but it wasn't supposed to explode yet. And um, I was, both of my eyes were severely damaged, and basically from that moment on, um, I was a blind kid. A lot of struggling, um, One of my points in this book is that I knew from day one that I was the same kid that I was before this tragic accident, but I was never treated the same by my family, by society. I then had a label, and again, that's part of my book, to show how um, what a disservice it is to label anyone. Now, in your home, was there support? My my family, my my mom was a single parent, and she simply was in denial, as was most of the other family members. And finally, uh, I did get some support when uh, a couple of years later I was sent to a school for the blind and saw that there were blind kids out there doing what I wasn't sure I would ever be able to do again. They were doing the normal things that that kids do. Have you ever had a chance to find out why your mother uh, had such a hard time with this? Well, at at that time, there just really probably weren't the support groups that there are today. If there were, she certainly wasn't aware of them. And then another thing, another detail about her personality was that... She was a perfectionist, and she had two daughters. I have one sister, and we were probably perfect in her eyes until I became different, quote, unquote. And that was just difficult for her to, deli- to, to deal with because of her basic personality. When do you remember that you started to have hope? For the future, was there was there an event, or was, did it just evolve, or what what, what happened? Uh, what what was the process? It certainly was a um, an evolution of events. Uh, probably, as I mentioned, being with other blind kids was the first step. Then uh, I went to uh, a regular public school, and then I went to uh, UCLA actually. And when I went into UCLA. Uh, I met a lot of 
blind college, not a lot, but a handful of blind college students who were incredibly bright, incredibly normal. There's that word again, whatever that is. And they belonged to an organization called the National Federation of the Blind. I became involved in that and uh, have been um, for the rest of my life. Your book is broken down, obviously, into many chapters. Some of the headings are quite interesting. You have one chapter called The White Cane. Now, this cane must have been uh, something important. It, it, it is very important. Actually, it's interesting. Quite often, um, when people see me walk around with a white cane, the first feeling uh, that they experience is pity. And it's, it's too bad. That's one of the things I'm trying to change by this book. That's my independence. That's not something to be pitied. Okay, I, I obviously understand that this world is a, a visually oriented world, and I function quite well in this world by the use of my cane along with Braille and, and other things. But, but the white cane is, is my tool that got me out there. When I was working, it got me often on two buses um, because um, it is just such an incredibly useful tool. What are some of the other things that have, uh, in those early years, that uh, were such a support to you that... Uh, was there was there any person that helped you, family member or a friend, or how did that happen? Yes, in um, in high school, um, there was one teacher uh, who happened to be blind, and she had a great deal of confidence in me, and much more than I had in myself, probably. And she insisted that I take all the prerequisites for college such as geometry and other things that I wasn't really crazy about. And I, I ultimately did that. And I, as, as I look back, I think that probably I wouldn't have been where I am today without uh, her level of confidence. And again, this was, this was a blind woman. So she knew. She uh, certainly was an encouragement to me. Well, chapter 10 has a title that you, when you first read it, you go, what? My career as a photographer? <laughs> yes. What? <laughs> yes. I had fun with, really, I had a lot of fun writing this book. And um, as a kid, before I lost my sight, I loved taking pictures. And I, w- I was very, uh, obviously, very observant as a child which is wonderful because I'm still very visually oriented. If you tell me that you have on a blue shirt, I, I can picture that immediately. So anyway, after I lost my sight, I kind of didn't do anything with that until I was an adult, and there was one situation where um, I was kind of laughing with my husband who was taking my picture, and I said, you know, I'm sorry, I can't take yours, and... He decided, yeah, you can, and and so since then, I really have been taking pictures. It's not a, it's not a um, a big deal to be able to listen to someone talking and to kind of center him in what I feel would be the middle of the picture. Obviously, I can't go out like a lot of photographers and take. Uh, beautiful scenic pictures. That's I can't do that. I could, but probably wouldn't be very accurate. But it's just something that um, I have uh, enjoyed doing. And there are some pictures in the book uh, that I have taken. What is the dark side of this disability? Okay. Unfortunately, in today's society, people who happen to be different are, first of all, often which we don't need, that's not helpful. But the negative cultural conditioning has brought about this attitude. This attitude, especially toward blind people, has been handed down since, you know, for, for centuries. There are those people in society who would take advantage of blind kids, of disabled kids, little kids, sighted kids who are, who are abused, have a tough enough time dealing with these kinds of things 
And it's my opinion, and again, from my own personal experience, that it's even tougher for a kid with a disability to go to anyone and explain that there is some abuse. And I hope that there will be some people in the field of disabilities who will read this and take heed, and parents, too, of blind, visually impaired, or any other disabled kids. It's an important message. Now, you also have been involved in dancing. <laughs> yes, I have. I must. You must love that. I do. I do, and as a matter of fact, I, um, my husband and I still love to go dancing, and that's, that's where uh, my present husband and I met, was at a dance during one of the conferences that we both, by chance, attended. That's, that's where we met. And, um, again, we both love dancing, and we still love to go dancing here in Albuquerque and do so quite often. How do you explain to those of us who see how you go through this process of meeting someone who eventually becomes your husband, you're blind, and, you know, there's obviously, because of the, of the sight, we often place so much on that on when we first meet someone. How, how did you go through all that? How did that? How did you deal with all that? Actually, it was just kind of one of those wonderful circumstances that I was from California at the time. My husband was from um, New Mexico, and we were both attending a huge conference of the National Federation of Blind in Dallas, Texas. A friend, a mutual friend of ours, introduced us. He is legally blind, which means he has a little bit of vision. He'd been in construction most of his life. Um, his wife had left him primarily because of his vision loss. We were both in our 50s. He was certainly not interested in finding a new soulmate. I was not interested. I had been divorced, raised my kids as a single parent. But there we were in Dallas, um, and like I said, we, we met at uh, during a dance in he he was just this wonderful, warm, kind human being with a great sense of humor, which is very important to me. We exchanged phone numbers. This was in July of 1993, and in October of that year, we were married, and we have just celebrated our 16th anniversary. Well, congratulations. Let's finish our talk about your book, Once Upon a Challenge, Hearing is Believing, with your thoughts about Braille. Okay. Um, I certainly wouldn't have been anywhere near successful without the use of Braille. How do you access a phone number, uh, of course, even a book or anything if you don't have the use of Braille? Obviously, I, I mentioned earlier, there's a lot of technology out with a lot of synthetic speech, and this is very good. But if blind people aren't taught Braille, and unfortunately some aren't because of teacher shortage and shortages and that sort of thing, but how would you function without your piece of paper and a pen? And that's how I feel about Braille. I wouldn't be able to really function without the use of Braille. Any closing thoughts, Nancy, about, uh, about your book? Yes, I guess the, the main thrust of my book is that for every problem, there really is a solution. And it may not be evident early on. You may have to search. But trust me. Uh, it's true. And challenges just make us tougher. Well, thank you, Nancy. Uh, tell us how to get your book. Oh, absolutely. My book is available on Amazon.com. Amazon.com, probably other and yes, online and retailers as well. Exactly. Along with iUniverse. Yes. Well, we appreciate you taking the time to share your story with us, Nancy. Very 
inspirational. Uh, we, we certainly can learn a lot from what you've gone through. That was Nancy Burns. She is the author of her book, Once Upon a Challenge, Hearing is Believing. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. He's a diehard American. He's right, and he has the last name to prove it. He's Jason Wright, the host of The Right Side of the Aisle on TogiNet Radio. Jason is a father and self-made entrepreneur who turned a struggling East Texas real estate firm into a top-notch million-dollar company. Jason Wright loves America and is very concerned about where we are headed as a nation. He's dedicated to traditional American values. Jason Wright. Join us every Friday at 11 a.m. Eastern for The Right Side of the Aisle on toginet.com. Maybe if I write a book, it will be the thing that keeps me alive. Those are the troubled words of a new 16-year-old author with her first thought-provoking book, What Gives? Published by Togi Entertainment. The author kept a diary during her dark teenage times, which turned into a 360-page suicide note with a happy ending. Texas Monthly describes teen author Chelsea Marie and her new book, What Gives?, in this provocative way. We've plunged from page to page, not because of the young diarist despondency. Depression is not especially attractive or compelling, but because we are fascinated to see that while she is fending off demons on one hand, she is writing verse with the other. What Gives is available at whatgivesbook.com and national bookstores. Readers of What Gives are giving rave reviews. All social scientists, teachers, and students should use this book as a learning tool. What Gives is available at whatgivesbook.com and national bookstores. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Scraps, Fictional Fragments, and the author is David Luck. And David joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, David. Hi, how are you today, Steve? Well, this is a collection of short stories, of stories that come from your experience of living near a, a, a lake right there in Denver, and then some other, I guess, some other uh, stories from your travels? That's correct, of course, uh part of why I named the book Scraps is because uh, it's just a variety of stories gleaned from uh, many places and many people. Although, as you mentioned, uh, the first five stories uh, are centered around a lake here in Denver called Sloan's Lake. And uh, I came to write those stories. Uh, I'd been living in the mountains, kind of an isolated area, and I was used to taking hikes by myself and and uh, just not inter. Uh, just not interacting with people particularly, and I moved to Denver itself and a few blocks away from this lake, and suddenly here I was just uh, overwhelmed by people of all varieties and ethnic uh, mix and uh, all the vibrant colors uh, of the city, and uh, that just uh, brought my mind into overdrive, and uh, I started imagining what many of these people I met might be doing in their life, and uh, out of that came these stories, these lake stories, the first five. And you say readers will enjoy the story's characters as they wrestle, these characters wrestle with familiar themes of love, lust, and yearning. Well, I always laugh a little bit about uh, about that when someone asks me, well, what, what do you really write about? Well, I think most all of us writers write about the themes of life, lust, love, and yearning. And uh, with outcomes that uh, these stories have outcomes that sometimes uh, are not always what uh, you think they should be. And I think that's the surprise in many of the stories. Um, you use, uh, is it Garrison Keeler? Garrison Keeler quote. Yeah, the correct. quote, uh, writers are vacuum cleaners who suck up other people's lives and weave them into stories like a sparrow builds a nest from scraps. That's true. And that's what, what we all do. And. I know that in my own experience, that's what I do, uh, sometimes not even realizing that I do it, uh, you know, meeting people and seeing people. I just collect these little tidbits, and uh, eventually those are woven into some story that I might uh, be writing. So as you uh, very specifically 
say scraps is not a quilting book. <laughs> but, you know, there are, these stories are like a tapestry of stimulating fiction. Now, what is the stimulating fiction? Uh, what kind of a theme do you have? Well, there's not a theme that goes, uh, you know, through the entire book in that sense, Steve, but the stories are, are just a, a lot of life stories. Uh, they involve people, real-life people, and what real-life people are, are dealing with, and how they, how they challenge each other, each other indirectly sometimes, sometimes very directly, and, of course, the... Uh, always the hidden theme of, uh, well, you know, is this going to be hurtful? Is this going to be loving? Uh, and, of course, sometimes the ending uh, will surprise even ourselves in our real life, and, and the endings will surprise us in these stories, too. And you touch on our memories, and you touch on our vulnerabilities. Well, that's really, really right. Some of these stories uh, came out of the past, um, I, I'm a native of Wyoming, and so I gleaned a lot of scraps from there, too. And uh, some of these stories delve back into my childhood, and uh, and I've had readers that have read the book, Scraps, uh, tell me, boy, this, I really relate to this. I can remember doing this when I was a, when I was a child, or I can really relate to walking around the lake, uh, as you do in your stories, because I used to do that, and I used to see people that were just exactly like you portrayed them in this book, and they really have enjoyed reading this book, Scraps. So you've really tried to make it realistic because you say my characters experience and struggle with these different desires, and like us, sometimes they're successful and sometimes they're not. That's true, and that's, uh, Steve, I've tried to write, I try to write realistically. These people are just like uh, you and just like me and just like the people we meet every day in our own families and uh, our own struggles and our own beliefs. And uh, sometimes uh, we get misled, too, by outsiders. And uh, then these stories in our lives, or our lives as portrayed in these stories, um, sometimes have surprising endings. We may dream about things all, uh, all our life, and uh, sometimes we realize those dreams, and sometimes we don't. And then sometimes we realize those dreams in a way in which we would have no idea it was going to happen. And I like to surprise readers that way. And you talk about the challenge of writing believable characters. That is really a challenge. It really is a challenge to write believable characters because... You pick a character, or you don't really necessarily pick a character, but a character comes to mind, and and I really try to put myself in that character's place, and what would I do in this situation, or how would I react to uh, this other person? Uh, and I try to make it as realistic as I can, because uh, I'm sure you've read books too, Steve, that the characters just don't seem real. You know, they couldn't do that, or you know, they couldn't think like that, and... Uh, I try to avoid that. I try to make them just everyday, common, ordinary people, uh, just like you and me. And you call that realistic creativity. I call that realistic <laughs> creativity, right. And I think a lot of that, you have to be a real observer of life, and I, I really think I am a, a real observer of life, of people and, and of life. It's, uh, it's kind of like standing on a street corner and watching the people walk by, but it goes deeper than that. Uh, people have coats on and clothes on and, and they look a certain way but uh, how do they really look uh, you know in their own mind how do they really look and uh, how are they really presenting themselves in the world and uh, kind of like looking at these people that way really analyzing them and how we think they might really be and, and then being able to write that is the challenge and how these characters might respond in a, in a different situation that you put them in. That's, that's always a surprise to me, too. And I, <laughs> I enjoy that part. You enjoy that part. You know, all of a sudden, your characters come to life and they start talking, right? That's right. And you go, wow, I didn't know they knew that. That's right. <laughs> Where'd they get that idea from? Absolutely.
You make this statement. You said some of the short stories in Scraps are, re- are a reminder of simpler times, our history, something we all yearn for. Now, talk about that. Help us understand what you're saying there. A few of the stories in Scraps uh, come from simpler times. Uh, they, uh, they delve back uh, to a time when we didn't have all the electronic media that we have now. Um, there's two stories in particular. Come Spring is one, and the, the other one is called The Box Social. And these are, uh, these are events that occurred back in, oh, say, in the uh, 40s and 50s. Uh, and these were social interactions where people actually got together and did things uh, socially without the use of electronic devices. And I, I kind of think that's interesting. Well, I, I, I think it's very interesting because we are so attuned to doing everything through electronic media now. And, and in fact, you'll see some of the cartoons in, in the everyday paper where uh, people uh, start to chat over the back fence and they say, well, you know, you can see my comments on Facebook. And uh, these stories, like uh, I mentioned, go back to a time when people interacted face-to-face. And uh, the box social is a uh, where uh, sandwiches were made by uh, the women and, and the young, young women, and uh, then they were auctioned off, and they were always auctioned off for a good cause. Uh, but as a young uh, person, as you'll see in the story, you'll find out why he's, he started to perspire, because he got his father to do the bidding for him. And these were social interaction things that we just don't see anymore. And I think some people yearn for that. They yearn for simpler times, and they will enjoy these stories. Now, the characters that are involved with lake stories, are are these people that you knew, or these uh, situations, uh, experiences that real people went through, or is this... Just what you've created. These are all fiction, just what I created. Uh, they're created, uh, or they are based on people that I saw, uh, observed around the lake on my walks, and uh, I just made up these stories about them. They, I never met any of those people in, in the lake stories. They're just truly fictional stories that I uh, invented, but based on real people that I saw around the lake and behaviors that I saw around the lake. Without giving away the, uh, the, the climax of this short story, tell us about the character Angelica. Just you know, give us some little insight into Angelica and what she's going through, her mental process. Here's Angelica, a young woman, uh, Hispanic in, in uh, origin, of course, and she's uh, she was, as a young girl, she was attracted to a, a fellow at the lake, and, uh, and not even a romance particularly blossomed, although she, uh, as a young girl, felt giddy in love with this guy and, and ultimately became pregnant, and things didn't work out and, and because of age difference and many other things. And so here's a mother with a child, and she's trying to get back into school to get, gain education, so that she can become something and support herself, well, the father enters back into the picture. And uh, slowly but surely, she wants him to get to know his and her son. But here she's torn uh, because she has a goal now. Boy, she's got a goal. She's going to make something of herself. She doesn't want to be caught back in this trap uh, with this man. But uh, this is all been pictured because she's waiting for him. They've come to a point where she allows him to take their son that they share uh, for an evening, and he's not returned the son. And this is uh, the setting is in in the winter time, and she's sitting in her car, and it's cold, and and that increases her anxiety. And where can her the father's her son's father be? He's late bringing back the sun, and all this anxiety is carried through in the icy cold of this car. That is Angelica. Now, why do you take us to England? Well, England, 
uh, I just looked for variety. Uh, I took you to England because I witnessed uh, an episode similar to what happened in Balby in this story, and I thought it would be interesting. And uh, it could happen anywhere, but this one did happen in England. And then you have, I guess, a comment about death and taxes. (laughs) (laughs) You know, the things that we all can count on, right? Well, uh, you know, there's always that saying, uh, uh, you know, about death and taxes. And uh, here's Loomis in uh, Death and Taxes, and and Loomis has uh, lived a a long life, but uh, uh, unbeknownst to him, Taxes are coming due, and, uh, well, you'll have to read the story to find out who who wins, death or taxes. So (laughs) it's an interesting story. You have another title, Never Be Afraid Again. Never Be Afraid Again uh, is a story that I wrote pertaining to uh, concealed weapon carry and uh, how concealed weapon carry can make us feel very safe. Maybe. <laughs> Maybe. Yes, it may be just uh, an illusion, huh? <laughs> but, well, you'll have to read the story. That's right. Easy. That's right. When you, when, you, when you can feel that weapon against you, I guess, you know, it's a different feeling than when you don't have it on. <laughs> yes, I'm sure that's true. And who's Petey? Petey is a parrot. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, okay, I'm glad I my, asked. I this, know, is, Petey. this is my fictional choice for, uh, for comedy. about your website my website uh, is easy to access it's www.davidluck.net so it's just my name and .net and you can find out more information about me and uh, and also information about my uh, other books that are available also and we can get your book through iUniverse as well as I'm sure all the online retailers that is correct Uh, amazon.com barnes and nobles any bookstore can uh, can arrange to uh, get the book for you. Well, David, we want to thank you for being on iUniverse Radio. Well, thank you very much uh, for talking with me, Steve, and uh, enjoy Scraps. That was David Luck, the author of his book, Scraps, Fictional Fragments. iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is produced by TogiNet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.